0: Well, it's the 1st of December, so unlike Alison last week, I don't have to apologise for my Christmas-themed sermon. And in the words of my favourite carol, holidays are coming, holidays are coming. <laughs> <laughs> as already been read this evening, I'll be speaking from Matthew 2, verse 1-12. to And whilst Maureen did a fantastic job of reading it earlier, I'd just like to read it again, seen as it was only short. he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they, when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When, the, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, And fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So there it is again. I'm speaking this evening about the three wise men, the three orient kings, the magi. These twelve verses encapsulate their part in this nativity story. But there's so much action in only these few short verses. And this evening I'd like to look at the five actions that these three wise men carried out. And how it benefited them. And how it could also benefit us and the rest of the world if we were to put them into practice. So the first piece of action is found in verse 1. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. When you say it like that, it doesn't really mean a whole lot. Nothing to really shout about, kind of sounds as if I said visitors from Trioki came to Emmanuel. But scholars are generally of the opinion that these wise men actually came from Persia, which is modern day Iran, which gives this statement a bit more gravitas. It's less Trioki to Astrid and more Morocco to Astrid, obviously with a lot less ocean to contend with. These wise men, as the famous carol says, have travelled from afar. In a word, what they've done is searched. Searched for the one who is to be born, King of the Jews, the Christ, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Anointed One. They have searched for him and they continue to search for him. But why? Why? Well, I think the main reason why anyone searches for anything or anyone is because they want to find it. Three wise men are looking for Jesus because they want to find him. But how do they even know to look for him? They knew to look for him the same way that Herod's chief priests and scribes knew where they might find him. They had been told that he was coming. They were expecting him and now they were searching for him. Whilst looking at the chief priests and scribes and the wise men, we see two sides of the same coin. We see two different reactions to the same information, two responses to the same awaited news. The wise men searched for the saviour and they saw him as a bringer of hope, a cause for celebration and devotion. But we're told in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him including the chief priests and scribes, of course. These men who had supposedly devoted their lives to the study of scriptures, these men to whom people would turn for information and knowledge about the scriptures, should at least not have been surprised at the news. Their reaction should at least not have been a negative one. And what about the rest of Jerusalem? They would have known that such a saviour was coming. Why were they troubled? And I think the answers can all be boiled down to one thing, change. Herod, well, as far as he is concerned, he is the king of the Jews. And anyone who claims otherwise is an enemy and needs to be destroyed. So you can understand why he might be troubled. The chief priests and scribes, well, they were the most holy and righteous men of the time. They were the ones who were closest to God and understanding him. They were the ones who deserved their position and standing and if someone was to come claiming to be God in the flesh they would most certainly face demotion. Troubling news if you become accustomed to being part of the elite. And as for the rest of Jerusalem they are the ones who get caught in every crossfire. They are the ones, the every man whose lives are lost in wars and whose taxes are raised when the money runs out. They are the ones who suffer the effects of any changes above them. And we're in a similar situation at the moment ourselves. Whatever your politics, an opportunity is on the way for change. And more than ever before, I think, people aren't sure as to where and in whom to put their trust. People are troubled at the prospect of change. Because until it happens, in spite of the promises and the threats, no one really knows whether we will experience change for the better or for the worse whether or not there will be tough times for a while before an even brighter future, or immediate improvements before a slow decline. We just don't know. All we know is that there will be change, and anyone who spares a moment to think about the prospect will most certainly be troubled. But putting politics to one side, the world is constantly like this when it comes to God, Jesus, and Christianity as a whole. For centuries, people have been telling one another and people have been reading about it for themselves in the Bible, that there is a God, that he did come to this earth as a baby, that he did grow up and do wonderful and marvellous things, that he did live a perfect, sinless life, that he did die a sinner's death there on the cross of Calvary, that he did do so to pay the debt of the sin of the whole world, and that he did conquer death, hell, and the grave by rising again from the dead three days later. That he is now in heaven sitting at his father's right hand, forever interceding for us. That the sacrifice he made 2,000 years ago was indeed a once and for all sacrifice and covers our sins today as much as the sins of the men and women there at the time. That this is a free gift. That this is grace in its purest form. And that salvation comes purely and simply from accepting all of what I just said. And yet people won't listen. People are scared of change. People won't search for him. This evening, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, then I would urge you to search for him. These wise men hadn't met him yet either. They'd heard about him, but they hadn't met with him. They didn't know him, and so they searched for him. This evening, you've heard for the first or the millionth time about God and who and what he is. Make today the day you start to search for him, without troubling over the change that will occur in your life, but rather rejoicing in it. As for for those of us who do know Jesus as our Saviour, are we done searching for him? Can we check that off our to-do list? I answer this question with another question. Do we know all there is to know about God? The answer, of course, to both questions is no. No, we don't know everything there is to know about God. And so, no, we shouldn't stop searching for him. We've given our lives to Jesus and accepted his free gift of salvation and we are saved. Yes, nothing more we need do in regards to that. But in regards to our relationship with God and in regards to our strength of faith in God, in regards to our growth in God, we should never stop searching for him. Searching and seeking to know him more and so love him more, and so serve him more. The next thing that these men of action did is found in verse 2. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? They asked. Something I tend to live my life by is if you don't ask, you won't get. Coupled with that is, the worst they can say is no. And my go-to story to give an example of this attitude is when I was on a brass weekend away for a lunch and they were offering jacket potatoes. Joel heard this story in a car the other day. And it was either tuna or cheese. And I don't like tuna. And I think that a jacket potato with just cheese is a bit naff. So I asked if there were any beans left over from breakfast that I could have. Not a problem. We'll get you some now. One happy girl, 29 other jealous people. And another non food related example is when a few people in my English class had our names put in a hat to decide who would be on the public speaking team. And when the three were chosen, everyone who wasn't chosen left gutted that they didn't make the team. Well, I didn't make the team either, but I asked if I could be on the bench. And my teacher said yes. And I got to go to all the competitions and do nothing but cheerlead from the audience. And I loved it. And it was all because I asked. And the act of asking questions has a great effect on everyone involved. For example, if I were here speaking to you, explaining um, in what formation I wanted you to stand, and I explained it very clearly and simply, and then I said, any questions? And then one of you said, so you want us to stand tightly, shoulder to shoulder, forming a large, tight circle. Is that right? I, as the one to whom the question is being posed, would be happy to hear that the people I'm speaking to have grasped everything that I've said and are keen to do as I've instructed. And you, as the questioner, would also be content that you know exactly what it is you've been asked to do. Another scenario might be that of a situation similar to starting from scratch on a Friday. Terence is sitting at the front, teaching us as we sit there at our tables. And if I were to ask him a question... I would be deepening my understanding of what he was saying and so benefit. And he might be encouraged that I've understood what he's saying and have an interest in learning more and so also benefit. When these wise men asked about Jesus, they were showing their hands straight away. The fact of the matter is that the very king they were speaking to was, in all intents and purposes, the king of the Jews. And in asking of all people Herod, they were showing him and us in reading about it that they didn't consider Herod to be the king of the Jews, which wasn't perhaps the safest thing to say to such a man. But in the same way that you only search for something because you want to find it, you only ask a question because you want to know the answer. The result of their asking for the wise men was that they showed their interest in Jesus as the king of the Jews. As for Herod, this question got the cogs in his mind whirring. Here are three men from a foreign country who have travelled to worship someone other than him He could have killed them now for treason But then he would never know where the child was The result of the wise men's asking for everyone else who was listening Was most likely a flurry of more questions It's estimated that there are over 3,300 questions in the whole of the Bible Does anyone know what the first ever question is recorded in the Bible? <coughs> No, that's the third. <laughs> that's the second. We find it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? A question, as we know, posed by the devil to Eve, that had one of the most profound and comprehensive effects on the whole world. Or perhaps the question in Matthew chapter 27, verse 22 takes that title. Does anyone know what that question is? I used one of the Indian Jews. No, similar. What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? This was, of course, a question posed by Pilate to the Jews, who, as we all know, replied with two words, that jar when we hear them, crucify him. These are two examples of questions being asked that changed the course of history for everyone. One that created a massive problem by the name of sin and one that dealt with the very same massive problem. Whilst these are two massive questions with massive consequences that are very important, as an unbeliever, the kind of questions that you should be asking can be found in places like Luke 18, verse 18. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit an eternal life? And Acts 16, verse 30. What shall I do to be saved? These are the questions that you need to ask to have an impact not on the whole world, but on your lives personally. When you've started searching for God, start asking. Start asking questions, all sorts of questions. Gather all the information you can. But the question you really need the answer to are these two. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Or what shall I do to be saved? Because they have eternal consequences for you personally. But what about we who believe? Are we done asking? I think I'll answer that question with the same question I answered with before. Do we know all there is to know about God? No and no. I believe that we have a responsibility to keep asking questions. To learn more about God and who he is and his ways. And what he's promised to do and what he's already accomplished both for our own relationship with God, but also so that we are prepared to be the ones answering the questions of the unbelievers. As soon as you become a born-again believer, you have the answer to these two important questions that I've mentioned. But sometimes people need answers to other questions before they consider asking such a big question. You know, generally, I love knowing the answer. I particularly love knowing the answer on Only Connect. I also love knowing the answer on University Challenge. But you know, I honestly love the most knowing the answers to questions about my faith when people ask me or challenge me. Because simply by knowing the answer, I can pass on the gospel and also show anyone within earshot how serious I am about my faith, making me a better witness for Christ. And I only know the answers when I do know the answers. Because I've already asked the question myself. We need to be asking the questions ourselves so we know the answers when we are asked. We also need to get used to answering people's questions. If you look at Luke 18 and Act 16, for example, those questions are almost identical, but they receive slightly different answers to suit the questioner. Jesus' answer to the rich young ruler in Luke aims to show him that he is a sinner in spite of everything, and needs a saviour. But Paul, in Acts, knows that the jailer he was posed a question by is ready to be saved, and so simply tells him to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will be saved. Without searching for Jesus, the wise men may never have found him. Without asking, the wise men would have found it a lot more difficult to find him. So search for God, and in searching for him, ask questions. Ask questions of pastors Ask questions of Christians you trust, but know that whilst you are asking people for answers, these people, we, are asking questions and receiving answers of God through his holy word, the source of all knowledge of God. And the next piece of action is found in verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. In other words, they followed. These wise men followed a bright light in the sky until it led them right to where they wanted to be, seeing their Saviour face to face. The appearance of this bright star in the sky caused these wise men to gather up their belongings, kiss goodbye to their families, and jump on their camels or their horses or whatever and travel a long, long distance. They would most likely have experienced times on this journey. When the climate was comfortable, the terrain smooth and spirits high, but they would also have most likely experienced time when the heat threatened to overwhelm, the sand was causing the feet of their animals to slip and slide and, and made the journey bumpy and uncomfortable and they were feeling down and tired and frustrated, most likely they also experienced times when they were neither up nor down but just ticking over routinely. Whilst they were following this star, the journey wasn't perfect, even though they were on a holy journey to meet the Lord. They still sometimes lost their way. They still sometimes lost sight of the star they were supposed to be following. Still questioned whether they were right to follow it at all. But at the end of their journey, however difficult, however frustrating, however unexpected or uncertain or testing, they got where they wanted to be. They met with Jesus face to face. All because no matter what happened, they always came back to following the star. A common problem in my experience that people outside of the church have with Christians, especially young Christians like myself, is that I'm only a Christian because my parents are. And they are only Christians because their parents were. And their parents before them. Essentially they think that I've been conditioned into this way of thinking. And when we first put our messy church banner up, someone wrote on it so that one of the activities people could expect from us would be brainwashing. And that word brainwashing brings a picture to my mind of people being forced to empty out their brains, get rid of everything and leave them empty to be filled with nonsense. This word can be attributed to many things, but not Christianity. Not as I know it anyway. Throughout my life as a Christian, I've been encouraged And felt compelled to engage my brain. As I've already said this evening, question things, verify things, search for things myself. Not to blindly accept teaching, but to challenge it against God's word. Whilst I oppose the idea that I've been brainwashed, I would concede that I have followed my parents into the faith. In fact, I wouldn't concede that I followed them. I'd be very happy to admit that I followed them. Followed my father... Who followed his father, who followed his father, who followed someone else, who followed someone else, who followed someone else, who followed the disciples, who followed Jesus. And Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. <laughs> so he arose and followed him. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And When Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. I'm happy to admit that I followed my parents into the faith because I know that we are all like sheep, as the Bible tells us, and we go astray. We all follow on from someone else who's following someone else who's following someone else we were talking I think last week about how unbelievable it is that we're soon to be in the 20s again and we all started naming things synonymous with the 20s and we could do that because everyone then followed each other in terms of what was fashionable to be wearing, to do or to go or to have or to listen to and it's been no different throughout the 100 years since every decade brings with it a new fashion and we all pretty much follow it. The trouble is that now we have the technology to adjust our entire bodies to, um, with the crowd. I saw a video on Facebook a while back. A cartoon of a woman looking at a billboard of another woman and doing everything she could to look like her. Dyeing her hair, closing the gap in her teeth, increasing the size of her chest, taking ribs out to get a smaller waist completely destroying herself just to look like what society thought was beautiful. And when she was finished, when she finally looked like the woman on the billboard, they changed it. And on the billboard was now a picture of a woman who looked exactly how she used to look. We are a world full of sheep, lemmings, simply following the person in front of us. And if someone more interesting crossed our path, we'd start following them. I thank God that I have parents and a family that are following God and that I grew up following them, following God. And whilst I followed, I looked around at all the other things and people I could be following. And then I looked at who was in the front and leading us and realised for myself that I always want to be following him, Jesus, right up until I get to see him face to face. Now, like these wise men following the star to Jesus, even though we are following Jesus, we aren't promised a smooth ride. In fact, Jesus himself says that we are to take up our cross and follow him. Matthew 7 verse 13 to 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Following Jesus is not the easiest path, but as this verse says, it leads to the best place. There will be ups and there will be downs, difficult and testing times when we think there's no way we can get through them. But we all have to remember that we aren't walking blindly. We're following, following Jesus. He's been through it all before us and goes through it with us. We are privileged people to have searched for him, asked about him and found him. That we need to follow him Other options may cross our path And we may be tempted by them We may even follow them for a time But just like the wise men We'll find our way back, way back on track And the closer we follow to Jesus The harder it will be for us to lose our way For those who may not believe You are following someone this evening And unless it's Jesus You'll go in the wrong way But if you follow Jesus I can't promise you, I can promise you an easy route, but I can promise an unbelievable destination. For those of us who do believe, let's remember who it is we're following and be good witnesses for God. Let the world see that we are happy with our choice of who to follow so that our friends and our families and our neighbours and our work colleagues will choose to follow us as we follow Jesus together. So when you've searched for Jesus, when you've asked about him, Um, when you followed him, then you can rejoice. Verse 10 gives us our next piece of action. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they saw the star, they rejoiced because they knew that they would soon be meeting Jesus. The star made them rejoice because of what it meant. It meant that they were close. We don't have a star now pointing us to Jesus. We have this, his word. Pointing us to Jesus. And if you didn't know already, it is cause enough to rejoice because within it, the, within the Word of God, with, no, within it is the Word of God. Within these pages are God's thoughts and ideals, God's promises, God's reputation, God's plans and purposes, mm. God's love, everything and everything. <laughs> punctuation is lacking in this everything and we should rejoice in it and I'm speaking to myself as well as to everyone else when I say that we should rejoice when we open it up and read it we should make more of an effort to do that because it is our bright and shining star pointing us towards Jesus and as people who have searched, asked and followed, we can rejoice that we even understand the things written in his word I'm about to show some uh, favorite verses from God's word. And for those of us who don't know the Lord, they might appear to be mere words. But for us who know him as Lord, they will mean so much. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. I like this one. (laughs) Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Perhaps this is the moment for which you have been created. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. So that no one may boast. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no under, no name under heaven given to mankind which we must be saved. So rejoice. You've searched and you've found. You've asked and been answered. You've followed and will arrive. And now, until then, and forevermore, you can rejoice. And finally, we read in verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The final thing these men of action do is bow down. Philippians 2 Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. A time will come when every knee will bow, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because that is what he's worthy of. Some of those people on their knees at that time will have tears of joy in their eyes because finally, at long last, our Lord is receiving the glory and honor that he deserves. However, some of those people will also have tears in their eyes, but tears of sadness and regret that they never searched for God, that they never asked about God, that they never followed God, that they never rejoiced in God and that they never bowed down of their own free will and worshipped him and it will be too late for those people this Christmas time let us all be men and women of action like these wise men so that when this time comes we can be amongst those with tears of joy Jesus loves you one and all search for him ask about him follow him rejoice in him and bow in humble adoration, today and forevermore. Amen. Amen.